Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings from Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. I am Jeffrey Hurley Guimera, professor in the Departamento de Humanidades de la Universidad de Puerto Rico in Mayagüez. This podcast, Nuevos Horizontes, or New Horizons, looks in on books in cultural studies, art, thought, literature, decolonial themes with a Caribbean access, anchored here in Mayagüez. It is sponsored by the Humanities Department and our graduate program in Cultural and Humanistic Studies, and in part by the Mellon Foundation. The co-host for today's episode is Risha Chamsky. Hi, Duff. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. I'm a professor in the Department of English here at Upeyari Mayaguez, and I am the director of our new oral history lab. The oral history lab is dedicated to recording the stories of the Puerto Rican archipelago with a special focus on climate justice. Super. Awesome. Uh, so today we're interviewing Ilaria Tabuso Marcian, author, critic, and professor at Arizona State University. She is the author of the book that we're going to be talking about, The Cultural Roots of Slow Food, Peasants, Partisans, and the Landscape of Italian Resistance, published by Lexington Books in 2023. Thank you very much, Ilaria, for being with us today. Thank you, Jeffrey, for having me today as a guest in your uh, podcast. And thank you, Risha, for being the co-host. Awesome. So this is our very first podcast in English. We have a bunch in, in Spanish in case uh, someone who's listening might be interested in, in, uh, uh, in jumping over to New Books Network in Español. So uh, I have a brief summary of the book that I'm going to read in just a moment and some questions that our graduate students have prepared. But before that, I wanted to detail a little bit of how this book came into my hands. Andrea Rigi is a professor at Monash University in Australia, and he's a friend and collaborator and a person with whom I share a great deal of interest. And we specifically are interested in, in topics related to Gramsci and his notebooks. And he recommended that we interview Ilaria. So I wanted to thank Ilaria for this wonderful book and also for Andrea for, for the connection. Uh, my, my reading of the book is, is my very first foray into food studies. And throughout my note-taking and, and interpretation, I found myself pausing to reflect about my own relationship with food, uh, how it plays such an important role, not only in my family, but also in the community where I live, uh, but also scholarly contexts art, philosophy, history, science, and our daily life here on campus today. There are many different angles to approach food studies when nutrition links to local and distant agriculture and also well-being. I find myself very interested particularly in how culinary arts criticism also looks beyond food consumption 
towards topics like aesthetic appreciation of food and also engaging social justice questions and gesturing toward thinking about food as a node of sustainability and eco-critical thought and praxis. And I congratulate you, Eliade, on all of those things. Slow food is an alternative to fast food, but it goes goes far beyond those terms. As Laria notes, starting with food, a concrete and material human need, as well as a source of nourishment and pleasure, the slow food movement proposes a new intellectual perspective in material culture. A political, social, economic, and more importantly, ecological paradigm shift coming from below, from the margins, from the global south, as a form of liberation from poverty, hunger, inequality, and ecological and human exploitation very beautifully said there. Uh, the cultural roots of slow food, peasants, partisans, and the landscape of Italian res resistance is an artfully written, precise, and accessible analysis that focuses on a variety of intellectual angles related to food justice literature, documentary film, and also argues that contemporary forms of envi environmental act activism can be understood as rooted in local food and sustainable farming. And the ways that these link to Italian peasant culture and their contributions to the resistance movement during World War II. This book looks in on the hinterlands to demonstrate that peasants, by sharing their knowledge of the land and traditional practices, produce their own organic intellectuals. Some examples examined in the book are Alcide Serbi, Nuto Rebelli, and uh, Hermano Olmi. Ilaria Tabuso Marcian argues that their work, personal experiences, and visions of resistance foreground the cultural roots of the slow food international grassroots movement. She posits that today, slow food in the communities of the Terra Madre in Italy and around the world represent one of the many examples of these new organic intellectuals committed to rebuild a more harmonious and sustainable relationship with the land. So uh, our podcast begins with a, with a set of questions. Uh, the first section is called From Context to Text, Biography, Experiences, and Mentors. That was a lovely introduction, Jeffrey, and uh, I'm very excited for this conversation today. Um, Ilaria, can you please tell us a little bit about your biography, your interests, training, and experiences, and how all of this has crystallized in this book? Thank you, Risha, for the question, and uh, seems almost like a million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> I would try to summarize and then try to make the most important points and see if uh, they, they make sense and connecting to each other. Uh, first of all, my academic history is not very linear. And so I'm going to start from uh, a long time ago when I graduated from the University of Rome, La Sapienza, with a bachelor and master's degree in literature and philosophy, and a specialist specializing actually in the theory and critics of cinema and theater. So that is uh, my first uh, academic background. Um, with that said, I had uh, a gap of almost 10 years between my master and then my PhD that I had um, the pleasure to pursue a UCSD in California. And during those 10 years, a lot of things happen, which is called life in general. And um, so I remember, in fact, when uh, I studied my PhD, that one of the professors, when I was doing the seminars, he would say, oh, Ilaria, you come from the ward. And I was wondering, what did she mean by this? And then I realized that actually she just meaning, she just meant that I was, I, yes, I, I had a real, you know, uh, regular life before coming back to, to the studies. 
And during those 10 years, I traveled the world. I spent three years in India with my husband before going back to San Diego. And uh, I think that that 10 years uh, gap really helped me to mature and clarify some ideas when I went to graduate school. Before that, what I could say is that I come from a family of a single mother. My father died when I was four years old and my mother never remarried. And uh, I think that the memory of my father and the loss of my father in my family created a, 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 a I cannot say really a big hole because there was a constant talking about him and his ideals. He was a pretty charismatic uh, person said by, you know, my family members and the people who loved him. But I learned only later, much later in life, actually, even after my PhD almost, no, just before my PhD, actually, that he was a partisan during World War II. So I feel that that kind of influence some subconsciously the direction that I went also in my research. Uh, the other uh, probably influential aspects were obviously my family and my brothers that they were much older than me. I was the youngest. And so during the 70s, they were very socially and politically engaged in the turmoils of Italy, of the 70s. And uh, so all these kind of contributed in shaping my uh, personal sense of justice, if you want, and injustice uh, around the world, but mainly also uh, in uh, what I would consider uh, the aspects that go beyond the woman, the humans, which is uh, the natural world and and all that is non-human. Um, in fact, uh, one other uh, things that happened that helped me, according to me, to shed my sensitivity toward the natural world is uh, growing up, uh, spending a lot of time during summer vacations in the Alps, in the mountains, and then during my 20s to be able to have a, a short but very significant experience in doing uh, in working uh, with a non-profit uh, environmental organization as a park ranger in a urban uh, park in rome and finally yes my trip in india which uh, during those years i was able to volunteer in a non-profit organization and, uh, and learn a lot of things about um, the communities in India and the impoverished, but also the happiness that can uh, can come even when you do not have much materially in your life. So <clears throat> let's see, uh, going back to my graduate uh, then uh, times at UCSB, I think I was the first one actually in being interested in doing research on eco-criticism. Eco eco and uh, that uh, came in being able to uh, combine uh, my personal um, passion and interest into my research. And, uh, and because of this gap of 10 years, I think also that uh, I wanted to be able to connect the real world with some of the theories that I was learning during my graduate school. And so during the seminar on Marxism, I remember that uh, the professor showed us uh, a video on uh, Bandana Shiva, who is an activist, an Indian activist, which I knew very well, 
but not through the studies, but through personal experience. Not that I know her personally, but I knew a lot about her. And so that kind of made me understand that, yes, I can do that. And UCSD, for as much as it, it was the literature department or popular for its um, heavy theoretical um, foundation, allowed me also to to see and be able to use some of my uh, practical and real uh, approaches that I have in my research into my PhD uh, dissertation. So I would say that those years really have a big influence. And so it's, it's a combination of personal experience, graduate studies experience, um, and my uh, and the guidance of my mentor, I would say, and the advisor, Professor uh, Pasquale Verdicchio, who, who is a Gramscian, who was uh, um, the first one, I think, that translated from Italian into English the Southern question, giving a little more commentary, in-depth commentary about the historical background of those times. And so I was able then to think, okay, how do I put my personal sensitivity toward the natural world and I had to, to focus on something and I realized that actually the farming culture was what I really wanted to focus on the relationship with the land and then Italy what about the best how can I say uh, what was for me the best uh, opportunity was actually to focus on this huge shift that there was uh, between uh, the beginning of 1900 so before World War One and World War Two, but especially World War Two, and then post World War Two. So, socially speaking, we really see a shift from uh, a society and a population that was over fifty percent uh, peasants to becoming more and more urban, and that obviously shifted also the culture of Italy. And that, thanks on one level the big economic booms of the 60s and 70s that Italy experienced, but then also with its uh, negative consequences, which could be some of these loss, cultural loss. And so to me, that was more or less the trajectory and um, and how that I arrived to, to think of this book in the terms that it came out. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to maybe share is that Within all these, I always uh, paid attention to forms like Gramsci says from below or subaltern. Uh, and so what he translated into me is uh, forms of activism, engagement in the, from the people to solve their own problems without having always be told from the top what they need to do. And so these are some of the inspirations, I would say. When it comes to readings, I think uh, that again, Bandana Shiva and Earth Democracy was one of the first readings that I did that inspired me to connect to slow food. And uh, being slow food, an international movement today uh, that has thousands of uh, uh, forms of activism throughout the world, it made me always ask, why Italy? How come no food studied in Italy? I mean, today we look, even uh, here in the United States, you go to grocery stores like uh, the famous and, and kind of gourmet uh, 
uh, whole foods and you see local and organic and natural, but those things were like this up to 60 years ago. We didn't need to label like that. <clears throat> wow, wonderful. It's, it's, what an interesting, rich context of especially this image summers in the Alps, like how wonderful. <laughs> and was there a moment when, when you think about kind of the, the formation of this book specifically about, uh, within all the context of your studies and your life experiences and your, your interests, when, when it seemed right, that this was the time to, to sit down and to think about this book specifically. The idea of the book after, you know, you, you finished your graduate school is always there. This is my first publication, uh, came. <laughs> in a moment that probably is being common for many of us, which is the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we got suddenly locked down. And at that point, uh, yes, we were working from home, but there was also a lot of uh, extra time to think and reorganize our thoughts. And I still remember our common friend, the colleague Andrea Righi, who one day said, okay, we should start to organize also like a reading group since, you know, we're so farther away and we can connect. And you, Ilaria, you should start thinking, writing your book. And I was like, oh, wow. And you know, coming from Andrea, which was also back then my colleague and the director of the Italian program, I'm like, okay, I better do that. And so that's how it started, honestly. But it was also very um, organic and natural because uh, before that, I I was in Ohio back then in Miami University, and so I already had uh, been involved in a research group uh, that we called uh, Environmental Humanities with other colleagues from other departments. It was an interdisciplinary research group. We already did a symposium and worked on a volume, and so I felt it was the time for me to write my own uh, book. And so that's how it went. There was enough time. I, I sent a book proposal to my first publisher, which was Lexington Books. And within, uh, I don't know, I think less than three weeks, they replied that they were happy to, to support me. Thank you very much. And, and that leads very nicely into my next question, because I think that your book and, and what you've been saying in this conversation so far has a lot to do with what I might term a catalyst moment, a moment in which something happens and it shifts the conversation dramatically. You were talking about um, World War II, you were talking about the pandemic, um, you were talking about your own personal situations and how those might have shifted things. When I was looking at your book, I was thinking so much about these points of connection between the work that you're doing and some of the things that are happening in contemporary Puerto Rico. So for example, I might look at Hurricane Maria as a catalyst moment. And that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of food-based work being done in perhaps a granular level, but it seems as though Hurricane Maria acted as a catalyst moment in which people in the archipelago realized that if approximately 87% of the food is imported from the United States, specifically from a port that was destroyed in Hurricane Irma that made landfall two weeks before Maria did, that situations with food, food production and relationships with food had to change. And in many ways, I think that that's equaled an uplift of traditional foodways within the archipelago. And so I was wondering if you had something that you might say to um, our students who are engaging 
with this book on our campus or even something that you want to say about connections between these ideas in Italy and these ideas unfolding in other parts of the world. Wow, thank you so much um, for the the comments, Risha, and, and the question. Um, yes, you're right. I think it's a moment of distress that somehow uh, forces us to think beyond the comforts that we give for granted. Uh, and, and, and in this case, food, it seems to have been like uh, considered in the last 30 years or more, more like a commodity than a rice, something that you can just purchase, uh, especially here in notice, but also in Italy in the last years, the cheaper, the better. And then we, and that kind of uh, taking away the real value to food, uh, it's, it's a way also to taking the real value from where the food come from, who produce the food, at least in my opinion, and taking it for granted that we can have it at any time. And then when these natural disasters, like you, you, you mentioned the hurricane right here, but when I was in India, uh, it didn't happen, it happened before. I mean, the tsunami of 2004, it was something that really shocked the population. And then because I was in Southern India and that, um, that really made, again, think of the necessity of being more resilient and, uh, and self-sufficient when it comes to food production and how, you know, this uh, interconnectedness, um, let's call not interconnectedness, but more like this relationship that there is invisible relationship between the local and the global, where somehow the global, it seems to have been dominating the local uh, in moments like this create a, uh, it, 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 it creates an upside down reality and, it, and it, it helps us to understand that we need to rely and be able to, to be connected and understand and know our local uh, landscapes, realities, um, biocultural diversity so that we can relate to it and, uh, and exchange in a, in a mutual, mutually uh, beneficial uh, relationship, which means Yes, we take, but we give back. And so one thing that I remember, even when I was in Ohio, but also here, it would be really thinking in terms of uh, learning how to do even a small vegetable garden uh, on campus, if it's possible. Uh, you, uh, UCSD, when I was a graduate student, uh, undergraduate students started a community garden. And then in a, like forgotten spaces on campus that then eventually uh, <laughs> the regents had to acknowledge they were doing such a great job that now they're still continuing. Um, here in Arizona, uh, it's something that I'm still trying to figure it out. How is it working? This is a large campus, but uh, in Ohio, when I was there, uh, just a year before I arrived, there was a uh, the creation, the institution, not institution, but uh, they created the Institute for Food. So they had a couple of acres available and they hired this amazing um, uh, director of farming uh, that uh, had this background in agroecology and it was able to transform this couple of acres from a dry and uh, very unfertile land in a beautiful uh, uh, 
polyculture land. Uh, so they, he started to have a vegetable garden, and from that he created a CSA. So I believe that uh, if uh, there is a more sensitivity and awareness of uh, these issues, there is a lot that can be done in many places, everywhere in the world, actually. I can, I can recall two really clear moments after the hurricane when they're really more relating to, I guess, water, but there was a, there were lines to get into the supermarket. And, uh, and I remember one of the people who just happened to be in line behind me at the supermarket saying, oh, I hope it rains today so that I can, so I can wash because water was really a big issue mm-hmm. a few weeks after the storm. And, and my family and I had, had a stockpile of maybe 30 gallons of water and we had maybe 15 left and we, we saw happened to run into one of my son's preschool friends' families there, uh, and they were dragging a, uh, a kiddie pool to put it in a truck, and then they were going to drive the truck really slowly back to their house, and they didn't have any water. And I said, well, we have some water. We're going to give you some water. And I can't tell you the, the look on their face mm-hmm. about that we had water and we could give it to them. And it was this, these things that are such basic human activities that are uh, th- these things happen and they are it's almost like there's a house of cards all around us in a sense and that these moments like that kind of just show how, how really fragile the systems are and to have kind of infrastructural security is uh is really a, a long way off yeah and i like the way that you said uh it creates an upside down reality in the sense that we become so dependent upon external sources for our food and our water that when there's an internal need, sometimes we're not prepared for that. And I also really liked what you said, and and I take that as a message uh, to our students and to our communities to take a moment to see what can be done and how you can participate. And I love the idea that the university administration acknowledged and praised the, the campus garden once it was going really well. Yeah. You know, yeah, (laughs) you touched upon a very delicate point, I think. The administration acknowledged the beginning, this work, and uh, I think at a certain point, uh, one thing that uh, the university systems, I feel, need to to kind of acknowledge is that education that uh, we are offering it doesn't have to be always uh, tied to, and, and I apologize, maybe this is not in the right place, but to profit. Because that uh, Institute for Food was mainly an educational uh, uh, ground. Students would go and would learn uh, to plant seeds and see by planting seeds how they would sprout. And then uh, many of them, they would just come and volunteer because they said it was therapeutic. So to me, what it really showed is that reconnecting to what surrounds us, uh, reconnect to uh, humans, to the other aspects of reality around us, they make us uh, understanding that we are all part of the same system. And uh, which is uh, not, uh, it doesn't have to be always where, you know, at the top of the pyramid is the human. Because we realize, like in, in times, like you were saying, um, uh, Jeffrey, before, of uh, natural disasters that, um, or in the case of the pandemic, so it could be a hurricane, it could be a tsunami, but it could be the pandemic, something even more invisible uh, and, and not so tangible, that helping each other 
it's something that uh, can be very powerful. And in terms of uh, natural resources, if we end up not exploiting everything, maybe we can be able to regenerate them. And yes, it's true. Some parts of the world uh, have some weaknesses in some of the natural elements. I live there surrounded by the desert. So here too, I mean, uh, there is a lot going on with the lack of water, uh, but even California, even more, even if they had, you know, like in the case of Puerto Rico, you're surrounded by the ocean. It doesn't mean anything, right? Uh, there are other ways that um, this lack. So I think that uh, in my case, food, it was just a starting point to show that everything and we are all connected with what surrounds us. And, uh, and so if we're able to, as a scholars in our case, but for graduate students to be, to use what we're passionate about. And not only do research on that, but be able to relate to that in a very pragmatic way. So how they used to say, to walk the talk, then maybe all these big discourses on climate change can be, become less and less threatening and, and more, uh, and we can all engage in a way that we can help to, to mitigate all this, uh, this topic and, uh, <laughs> and futures that, you know, they kind of, uh, seems to, to be just there down to We had a, an activity yesterday here on campus about, uh, in part about sustainability and, and integrating sustainable perspectives for, for STEM. And there was a, a, a just a, a brief part of the discussion about how the transition from, uh, polytheism to monotheism, the Christianization or the Islamification or the, the, you know, the, the, the three great, you know, uh, monotheisms and, and the way that those three, which are encompass almost half of the world population, about how those three are, are all very similar in that they're social religions and that in what they replaced in, in many, if we use kind of Western Europe and, and also the Americas as a, as examples, what they replaced was a, a spiritual system in which uh, there was a, a balance of physical things of the environment as well as human affairs. Whereas once a sin, for lack of a better term, is against a person and, and the, the, the environment is lost, you know, fast forward 2000 years and we have where we are now that nobody cares about the, these things and you have to work backwards to, to really develop sensibilities. I think the idea of spirituality without it, how to involve, uh, and it, and, it, and one of the questions were, how, well, how would we do that? I don't really know, but I think that when you just, it happened, you know, this and the kind of the Christianization as it were, or the, the, the mono monotheization of, of kind of reality that happened. It was a programmatic thing that was realized in large part for the, by the, by the Roman empire. I don't know if I, um, specifically relates to, to food, but as just as, as a, the relationship that human beings have with spirituality, but also in a, in a, in a broader sense with their, their surroundings. But that, that actually wasn't my question. <laughs> my question yeah. was, one of the things I have for, uh, that I often, I, I feel like I, maybe I give too many writing assignments in class, but, but one of the things that I, I always yeah. say to students is que escribir es una buena forma de aprender, or, or writing is, is an excellent form of learning. And I was wondering, are there any uh, as you sat down and, and wrote this book, were there were there things that you? What are some of the things that you learned as you wrote that, that maybe were unexpected that you that came out as your of your of your writing process, as it were? I would like to comment also what you said before, but yes, yeah, so during the writing. So for me, um, writing in English is not writing in my native language, right? So it, it's kind of a very cathartic moment because I have to think double, uh, and then I have to find the terms that 
uh, kind of translated what I would like to say, and then my vocabulary is limited. And so it's kind of a, it's a process. But what I really um, learned is that it, it's a way to finally, especially when it's published, I have to say, make it real or what you have inside can be communicated. So it's a way of sharing. And, uh, and if we, if we all have something to say that I feel can help other people to, to act with, how to say, to, to enlarge their perspective and vision of the world, regardless of the topic, regardless of uh, the discipline and, uh, and the perspective and the angle that we take. So in my case, I have to say that, um, I didn't even know I was going to go in this direction. And it was one thing after the other. It started with this uh, idea of peasant culture. And when did it say, and then you start asking questions to yourself. And so you find yourself in a library. In my case, I had to go, uh, do research back to Italy. I did some summer schools in, uh, in the land of the, of the Chadley family because uh, their farm became actually a museum and, and archive. And then from there, I learned, uh, actually, even before I learned about Nuto Revani, but the work that Nuto Revani does, it's really based on oral history that he put it in a, a, a recording. He recorded in audio recording. So that eventually became uh, another museum. So what I, while I was writing, for me, it was, uh, making sense of all my experiences and be able to share in a way that uh, was a little more linear and logical for uh, who would have the time one day to read some of the things I wrote. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was also very, it was a, a time to grow. It's, really, it's a wonderfully grow. written book, by the way, and I really like the way that you just, just described that making sense of my experiences. That's mm -hmm. a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful reflection. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and, and so again, uh, I don't know if that comes up uh, enough in this uh, in this book, but each chapter is related to and it's still existing or a legacy that uh, this artist, like the case of Hermano Olmi, or historian and ex-partisan, as the case of Nuto Adli, or farmers, or Carlo Petrini, obviously, who is still alive and is doing a lot um, from theory to practice, or sometimes even even if it doesn't make sense, from practice to theory, meaning that when we talk about farming, farmers or peasants in that in, back then in Italy, they didn't even know that they knew. They were just doing it. And if, if someone was asking them, okay, how do you do that? They wouldn't be able probably to explain in an educated and logical way, but they were able to show in it. And so I feel that this kind of approach in research can be uh, very useful today uh, to reconnect in ways that can be practical to knowledges that are very useful today. Uh, one could be farming, uh, another could be food, but then uh, you were talking before about spirituality, and I was thinking also of the wisdom of uh, native people. They have a wisdom, and when we talk about native people, could be American Indians, but could be 
indigenous people in general, wherever they are, that they've been dispossessed by their uh, ancient knowledges, that they were, they were much more uh, connected to the surrounding world than it is the Western tradition. And so I wonder if sometimes uh, as Westerners we can have a, a, we can act in more humble ways toward these other traditions that they can teach us something that, like you were mentioning before, maybe we have lost in the last centuries. Uh, thank you, Ilaria. Uh, sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons why I'm so interested in food studies is because I love to eat so much and I want to try everything that I possibly can try in the world. Um, and so I'd like to move the conversation a little bit to eating. One of the things that we try to talk about a lot in some of our courses is simulacra and the idea that the symbol of the real in some ways becomes more real than the real itself. And so I was wondering if you had some thoughts you'd like to share with us about um, Italian food in the United States, especially something like an olive garden that would be um, more similar to a fast food approach than a slow food approach, especially in terms of commodification of food and in terms of sending uh, pre-prepared meals into a restaurant to be reheated or to be um, cooked uh, from their frozen state. And, and just if you had some thoughts about how that fits into your theorization of food, but also how that fits into people's identifying culturally with certain kinds of foods. Uh, that's it. That's a very nice question. Um, Rich, and uh, so let's see. Yes, yeah. Ah, uh, it's hard. It's a hard question. So I, I still think that we need right now in these words that local and global is very blurred. So uh, when you think of uh, ethnic food, let's consider Italians an ethnic food as it could be Chinese or uh, Indian or uh, Mexican food, right? Uh, it all they all tend to be a little bit adapted to the culture where they want to become more and more popular. And arriving in the United States, I have to say, I rarely go to any Olive Garden, I think I stepped in uh, two times because they took me there. And it becomes a marketing. It cannot be even considered Italian, honestly. But that's how it is interpreted here. Uh, I was very surprised the first time uh, I saw a pizza with chicken. I'm like, seriously, we don't do that in Italy. So how can we even consider that an Italian pizza? Now, they would do it here, but I, I think... Uh, when uh, people start traveling and they go to the places of origin where certain foods were, you know, originated, like let's talk about the stereotypical Italian food as pizza and pasta or even ice cream, gelato, they see how it, it is totally done differently. So uh, this simulacrum, like you were saying before, um, probably helped to create some sort of images and and in our minds and our experiences that are very far away from the original. So a way that I, with my students, usually I try to talk to is uh, starting from uh, the beginning. Exactly. What is that you're eating? Start thinking more about where this food is coming from. Because if it is coming, 
like even in Italy right now, children think that meat comes from a carton, like a, a bottle. They don't even think that maybe there was a cow before that, <laughs> right? And that to do that, to produce that much milk, it means that this cow has to have some calves and those calves have to be taken away so that the, the cow wants to produce more milk. I mean, there is all this thing behind. And so I think that with knowledge, then we can reutilize our intellect in ways that can help us to, to go back to the source. And, and that's like what I'm trying to do in the introduction when I talk about my memories of Funduta that my mom used to do. And when I, I ate for the first time the, the Fontina cheese, this cheese that it's in a, produced fresh in the Alps. And then I could see, then I finally could understand what my mom was saying. Only when I ate it fresh from the place where it is produced. And, uh, and so this is something that maybe it's a re-education to taste also and culture related to food uh, i remember one thing i did in the past with my classes was uh, to give two little cups of um, i did it with two different kind of foods one was a fresh raspberries coming from a farmer's market so from a farm nearby local farm another there were raspberries coming from the grocery store and then they had to learn eating and try to describe what they were tasting. And then at the end, what they liked the best. Uh, my experience was always 50-50, sometimes even more. The people, students would like the one coming from the grocery store, which had a very bland taste. And so Massimo Montanari, which is an Italian uh, media, uh, historian on uh, of food, uh, talk about food as culture and even taste can be a culture but then if uh, this culture get uh, takes uh, you know removes us from the original uh, fresh product then uh, there you go Nisha we have this packaged food that who knows what they have inside and who knows what's the purpose of those packaged food and I I'm not gonna go there now <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. I, I really enjoy, I was really engaged by your, your comment about uh, people who work as, as peasants or as, as people who, who distribute food and work with food and, and maybe not being able to understand that not, or at least express, not understand, of course, there, uh, it reminded me a bit of, of when you ask uh, somebody who hasn't studied languages about language, about plusquam perfecto or something like that, and, and about how uh, this kind of unbringing into the, into that discussion, kind of the, the, the way that interacting with the, the land and interacting with seasons, interacting with rain and the seasons as, as kind of a language that is, uh, it's there. And, and I think that people who have it often don't, don't appreciate it. And, and as a skill, as a, as an artisanship to that kind of relationship. And, and I wanted to, to cite as, especially what you describe in, in the introduction as other kinds of knowledge and also bioregional awareness and attitude. I feel like those have a lot of overlap with the, what would be kind of the, the decolonial move as it were. And one of the things that you just said about re-education was a lot of things in kind of the decolonial turn have to do with kind of unlearning. Uh, and I feel that uh, maybe you might expand a bit on this, but I, I think that, that food studies and kind of the consciousness of food and about where it comes from and how it's di distributed and how it's uh, is kind of a, potentially a, a place where there's a lot to, to there's a lot to reflect on. There's a lot to, to grow from, a lot of reflection, critical reflection, not just about food, but about a lot of other things. What if you might 
have some have some thoughts on on food as a as kind of a decolonial apparatus. Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, now food studies can be uh, it's a relatively recent uh, field of studies. So, but it has been taken already different uh, directions. So there is the one that is more historically based, the one that is more culturally based, the one that analyzes tech to go back, you know, to the origins of certain food. And uh, in my case, I am interested in the relationship between food, environment, land, and justice. So the connection between uh, what is, uh, who is working the land, so human, and how they do it, and for what purposes, and then what is the result of the land, and then the food becomes the result and the product that actually, so it's all connected to me and, uh, and that can become uh, a source of health and happiness as a source of poison and uh, illness. Um, and so in this case, I would say that um, food can become a, a way to rethink uh, in healing ways. So yes, I think uh, we, if we're talking about decolonial, maybe we should decolonialize uh, the land that we inhabit in a way that we've been doing it for centuries. And a way to learn how to do that is through, I would say, indigenous peoples or um, people who've been using the land in the proper way, which is in this case, um, again, I would say, not the industrial and the, the the consumeristic way of thinking, right? So again, I, I started, I think, a, a while ago talking about how we consider food now as a commodity instead of a, a, a something that has value. And so if we consider something that has value, also our relationship with food changes. And then if it is food, it becomes the land. So when we, ca- we talk about agriculture, for example, the agricultural system and industry is right now one of the most pollutant elements and poisonous in, in the atmosphere that we uh, as humans are creating. Uh, we can revert that and we can learn that in, uh, from people who are doing that in a, a more regenerative way. And, uh, but to do that, we need to change the way we approach it. So that's when I think... Uh, and I use the term paradigm shift is uh, is essential. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. Sometimes I, I think that's a beautiful me. response. Yeah, I, I do. I think that that's a, a wonderful way to put it. And what you what you've just said just reminded me of a, a well, before I was a professor when I was a graduate school. I, I worked as a taxi driver for a number of years. And and one of the one of the men other people who was a taxi driver was a man named Alberto, and he was illiterate. And he, this was kind of before GPS and everything that now kind of dominates driving as like a human activity. But and so everybody had maps in their car and and. He didn't have a map and he, and I, it took me a few years to, to perceive that he was illiterate. And once I did, I, I figured out, I figured a lot of things became clear, but one of the things that the maps, one of the things that was clear during the years that I was the driver is that the maps everybody was using were not, they weren't, they weren't always right. And always the question was from the, from the dispatcher, when anybody had a, had an uncertainty about how to get someplace, it was always ask Albert because Albert is the person who knows these things. And he had like a kind of intellect that is the type of thing that's not recognized. And I think about his 
kind of internal maps of the, and uh, I think illiterate does not mean inarticulate. And he was one of the, I think that type of knowledge that he had and, and kind of, I don't want to be kind of in, in defense of illiteracy, but I think that there are certain, uh, and that this kind of really speaks to, to kind of the, if we were to kind of re-indigenize or, or rethink our relationship with land, our relationship with knowledge, our relationship with all these certainties that kind of drive us toward this type of kind of monotheistic, yes. but also mono-whatever, the universalizing experience of being a human being. And and there are other experiences that are that are really clouded. And and, and in fact, I would say in, in the case of Alberto, it being just uh, not only not recognized, but penalized. And and that, which is, I think, is really, uh, I think what you were just, I think, alluding to with, with that response, I think was similar, similar things about rethinking our relationships with land and with these, these production models. And yes. And, and just to add that, you know, we, uh, universally are dismissing experiential knowledges at this point in the 21st century. And when we turn back to what you're talking about with maybe environmental racism and environmental justice on a world stage or a global stage, we are very specifically saying this is the kind of knowledge that is valuable and this is the kind of knowledge that is worth less than somebody who has a piece of paper, somebody who is a researcher, and it would make a lot more sense. And I think I'm echoing what you're saying here, um, especially when you're talking about um, the need to re-educate or the, the need to go back to an origin is that until we're in a moment that we can recognize experiential knowledge and eyewitness testimony to something that is healthy for the human, healthy for the environment, and healthy for the planet, we're not going to really move forward in substantial ways. No, and yeah, you're right. Um, and without taking you know, away the value of writing uh, uh, and the academic education is essential, absolutely. But I feel that um, there's been a disconnection, like there's been this dif um, separate, and again, maybe because of my uh, taking this uh, 10 years gap between my education in Italy and then my doctorate degree, uh, between what's really going on in the world and what's going on in uh, what they used to be called the ivory tower. Well, the ivory tower cannot be ivory tower anymore. Uh, the two need to talk to each other and they can, uh, they can help each other. So... I don't know. And you talked about experiential learning. Exactly. Uh, I remember, again, when I was doing my doctorate, there was this uh, tendency to, which was with very good intentions, obviously, uh, to invite, right, like activists, and we still do, right, to have talks in our uh, in our universities and campuses to students. I feel that right now it's also a little bit the time to do the opposite to bring our students to see what's going on in the world with some experiential learning activities. Because if not, we still continue to consider that the, there is not this horizontal relationship. It's always a hierarchical relationship. And we're doing the, um, some sort of a favor, you know, like we're creating an honorable situation. The truth is we have, we need each other. We learn from each other and we help each other. And that can be translated also in uh, environmental activism and with the food that we eat. Uh, we can eat uh, prepackaged food, but then when we start thinking about, okay, what are we really eating and who are we really supporting when we do that? So again, translating 
theory into practice. And if we stay only on the theoretical aspect in these times, contemporary times, um, I don't know how much we're going to be really able to to change things. Yeah, thank you for there, Mert. That was uh, for me one of the strengths of your book is is specifically that you can kind of sense this, these sensibilities that are I don't want to say against the grain, but really have different depths than kind of traditional approaches to uh, to, to these types of topics. And, and kind of partiendo de esa base, you know, they're kind of coming from that that base. I wanted to to ask you just in 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 light of what you just mentioned about how difficult it is and since the kind of industrialization of food but also also these categories of of, of being categories of spacing categories of mm-hmm. like we were talking before we came kind of on the air as it were about uh the kind of the, the distinction between kind of tijuana and san diego and, and how those the ways that that has been kind of really the platform of of humanity has been so controlled and kind of pre-prepared and uh, in light of all of these things, and, and especially, especially perhaps of digitization and kind of the the new empire of the smartphone, as it were, in uh, these these are conditions that are. Uh, do you think these are also changing our relationships with with the food, with land that it's producing, and with the communities that are producing it? And and I don't know. I, I, do you see do you see any any kind of suggestions beyond? I think the suge- the great suggestion in your book is to to, to be conscious of these things, but in, any. Uh, I guess to kind of move towards uh, uh, another, like a uh, kind of a, an action or, or a collective way of thinking or a collective way of being conscious of these things that would that would kind of work towards uh, a more healthy way of of being human. Well, I will. Uh, we have to <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think uh, these, uh, you know, these tools are there, uh, and uh, it's part of uh, of technological progress, uh, AI, we know it's something that it's already around us. It's the way we use it, but it's, uh, it's going to dictate the outcomes. Um, and these things can be amazing tools. I mean, totally, uh, we can use to connect to each other and not to falsify or create, you know, fake things because come on, we, right now there is even lab meat. Meat can be uh, now created artificially. I don't even know. I don't even understand the need to do that. So, but those discourses and those realities are out there. Uh, I think we can use the same technology to a way that can help and be very much um, useful to each other. I'm thinking of this podcast. I how we would have ever been able to talk about this if there was not this platform right now. So thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, but we can talk also, uh, I believe probably even the farmers are grateful to certain things, including GPS. Um, I was um, talking to a film director, uh, Anna Kauber. She, I, I think I mentioned in the book also, uh, she did these film documentaries on women shepherds. And some of these women, uh, obviously, when you go in the mountains, there is not much signal. But now the signals are stronger and bot can be useful even for them. Uh, there are certain things that you can do to retrace the animals so they don't get lost. So things can be used in, in many ways. It's up to us what choices we make. Um, I think uh, one thing that I wanted to share with you guys is when I went in, in 2022 to Terra Madre, the event uh, in Turin, 
and Terra Madre is this network of uh, food producers, chefs, educators, and and they meet uh, once every two years, but then they continue to stay connected those two years uh, through many other events. And uh, I went to this dinner where there was uh, this chef, uh, indigenous chef, it's um, from uh, the Sur, um, Lakota um, tribe. Uh, his name, he's called, I mean, he calls himself Sher- Chef Sherman. And uh, I quote this uh, at the end, basically, in my conclusion. And I thought that it was so profound what he said, because he is not denying his origin, but in the same time, he's also acknowledging that he lived in a different world and he doesn't want to go back. It's not possible to go back. So we need to create those bridges. And uh, I'm going to quote what he said. Uh, we are in a different world. We can't go back in time and just be in a different time period. We lost a lot of indigenous knowledge in the United States because of the way indigenous people were treated. Some tribes retained a lot of their knowledge and some tribes lost everything, including language. It's really hard, but I feel there are a lot of pieces we can rebuild. For me, it's about being on the path to try to understand as much of that knowledge and education as possible and applying it in the world we live today. It's a chance to evolve into something else. I'm sorry, something different. We have all the technology. We can share all the knowledge so quickly across the world. It is important to utilize that. But it is also important to understand the amazing knowledge our ancestors had and trying to move forward into a better direction. As indigenous people, we can process the two worlds we live in and walk through that line to evolve and change into something else. And that's what we have to do. I was able to eat in his restaurant a couple of years ago and to visit Um, I'm going to say school, I don't have the title of it off the tip of my tongue, but a cultural heritage center with a working kitchen for young people and and other folks to come in and and take courses on indigenous food uh, ways and and methodology. So I'm so glad that you made that reference. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious to learn about how you see this particular book as situated within your your um, research and and where you think this project might lead you in the future. Thank you for the question. So first of all, this book uh, is a, you know and specific messages, but it, it is it has also some sort of. Uh, I don't know. I I don't think we can call it weaknesses or is lacking some other information. Uh, so one thing that I said in the introduction and I want to keep saying is that uh, geographically speaking, because of certain purposes and the limitation of the of the project, I focus mainly in northern Italy. Same or similar or even more relevant realities are also in southern Italy and around the world. And so number one. And so that is what uh, what is missing in this book that is taking me to the next uh, steps. And I'm, right now I'm interested in, uh, I'm working uh, with other colleagues in uh, 
in another food studies project. And personally, I'm interested in uh, what are the young people, the, the the generation that you know that we're trying to to pass the baton are doing about it. And I'm uh, I want to be very optimistic because I feel that we need to also share that part. You know, beside all these uh, negative uh, things that are happening around us. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking into that. I'm looking into who are these new organic intellectuals, what kind of background they have. I have a project that I want to, I don't want to say too much right now, but I'm looking into a new project. Yeah. That is again, trying to connect these, uh, uh past that is at some values to in new ways, the ways that can include also technology. Uh, but not only, uh, and reconnect the, with the land in the healthier ways, both uh, intellectually and uh, physically. Yeah, I appreciate yes. that very much. I think that within the climate justice community, we're um, not quickly enough, but but quickly realizing that we haven't had enough discussion about hope. And in order to work for change in the future, that conversation about hope has to be closely intertwined in our conversation about what are the problems that we're facing. Yes, I think that the phase of acknowledging the damages of the poisonous that is around us has been done in great work in eco-criticism and environmental humanities and that level, and there is much to be done, absolutely. But on the other hand, there is also we need to start looking also what can be done to revert that in order to to offer something better. Uh, it made me think, for example, when I the the volume that I was that I never mentioned with the environmental research group that came out. It's called uh, "Contesting Extinction and Regenerative Futures." So actually, it was uh, "Contesting Ex Extinction." Um, Decolonial and regenerative futures. That was the title of the volume. And uh, and at the beginning, the symposium wanted to be about extinction, but then we had this linguistic uh, professor who we invited from UC Riverside, who said, "Well, if we're not ready to contest, also the idea of extinction, I don't know if I want to participate." And we were, "Oh no, 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 we want you." So. That helped us so much because, for example, he is uh, uh, working on revitalizing the native language of the Miami people. And he told us how many times he uh, he had to rewrite on Wikipedia. You go to Wikipedia and you read uh, Miami language as a dead language. And he said, no, it's not dead and it's not extinct. It was dormant and now we're revitalizing it. So that principle to me can be applied in so many other fields when it, we talk about uh, sustainability and environment and climate change. Yeah, this is actually wonderful comments here. It, it made me think of a little bit about uh, my, my wife is from Ecuador. So we spend some time in, in the south of Ecuador each year. And, and the, the communities, there, the indigenous communities specifically have an approach to food production that is more of the question is not so much like what can we sell, but within our climate, what is the, the food that we can produce that is most you know, nutrition for us, but also uh, in the longer term. And, and those types of experiences, I, I think, 
it's not really, is it really possible in, in kind of the Western industrialized, especially kind of the U.S. with just such an unhealthy food culture in, in itself? Um, and I don't know, I, I question about that, about it seems the solutions being being there, but it's the, the driving ethos of kind of, especially in the U.S., kind of this money issue of, of yeah, there's questions, I think, how to, how to break that, but it makes me very happy to know that you are working on questions like that. Uh, and... <laughs> And and so it's really been a delight for me. Thank you so much for for this excellent, wonderful conversation. Uh, what a joy it was to speak with you today, Laria. I'm I'm very grateful that I had this opportunity, and thank you also to Jeffrey for inviting me to join in this podcast episode. Yeah, gracias por venir. Pues, sí, and you're hopefully we can repeat soon with your next book, Ileria. Oh, thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you so much, Risha, for being the co-host of this podcast today.